news of God's grace to sinners such as us who feel the prone to wander dynamic of our hearts is that by that very grace, we can come to sing above all else. Above all else, that God would be above all else in our hearts and for our hearts. And so it is with that thought that we move into our message this morning. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to consider the whole chapter together today, but we're going to read at first just the first 13 verses. We consider hearts that long, that long for things, and, and in that longing can wander off, and yet by God's grace can be fettered to him, so that they are wandering, longing hearts can come to sing above all else. So if you have your Bible, and, or if not, and you're able to follow on the screen, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to start with verses 1 through 13. Let's hear God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face, by the sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the, ma- the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let's pray. God, as we consider your word this morning, we pray that you would help us, that you do good, timely, encouraging work in our hearts, that our hearts that long And wander, God, would you help us to see that you are gracious and good and worthy of our very lives. Do with the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing of this, your word we pray in Christ's name, amen. Nostalgia is a lucrative business. I'm sure you've noticed. Entertainment, fashion, music, all pull at those strings heartstrings of yesteryear, when everything seemed sweeter, less complicated. The series Mad Men, named after the Madison Avenue marketers and advertisement savants of a bygone era, captured the power of nostalgia in what is probably the most iconic scene from that series. Don Draper, living out his own a little Ecclesiastes storyline, was the central figure of the series. And he closed a deal with Kodak executives who needed help 
with a little projector they had called the wheel. He did so by capitalizing on the power of nostalgia while clicking through a series of family photos he said these words nostalgia it's delicate but potent teddy told me that in greek nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound it's a twinge in your heart far more powerful than memory alone this device isn't a spaceship It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It lets us travel the way a child travels, around and around and back home again to a place where we know we are loved. We ache for places in our lives to go back to again and again. We ache and we long for these moments for many reasons. Perhaps our current days are filled with struggle and strife, and so we long for those sweeter days that we remember. Perhaps we have lost a loved one, and we long for the days when we felt her or his hand in ours. Perhaps we look forward and we see uncertainty in our days, our health, our finances, our our relationships, and we long for the days when things were clearer and simpler. What nostalgia reveals is that we have hearts that long for something. We long for something. The preacher knows this. And he exposes the raw nerve of it in verse 10 of chapter 7. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom you ask this. That stings. Because maybe you are thinking about the very thing that you're longing for. In fact, really the whole chapter of chapter 7 is about guarding the heart. Guarding our hearts that long for satisfaction, that long for something. And the preacher goes about saying, watch it, be careful to guard that longing heart of yours because this frustrating world will leave you unsatisfied. So so how do we go about answering that primary question that Ecclesiastes sets out to answer? What do we gain from all the toil in which we toil? Or the way we have it put in our series, how do we go about living well in a frustrating world? And we have a little wrinkle to that question today in chapter 7. How do we go about living well while we have hearts that long? How do we live well while longing? How do we do that? Knowing that the world around us is going to let us down in some measure. How do we go about living well while longing? Well, we're going to be very just basic here with this, with this outline. We need to acknowledge some things in order to to walk our hearts back into a place where they can find ultimate satisfaction. And the first is this. We just need to simply acknowledge that our hearts will long. That our hearts will long for something. We long for something. Whether we look back or we look forward, we're longing. Secondly, we're going to see here in our chapter and all of the things that the preacher brings out 
the good and the bad and the inconsistencies that we experience in this life is that the world just simply can't deliver what our hearts are longing for. We can experience good things, but sometimes those good things come to an end. How do we settle that into our heads and into our hearts? And so we need to see that the world can't deliver. And then shocker, here comes the third point. Only God can satisfy. Only God can be the ultimate satisfaction for hearts that long. It's not wrong that your hearts are longing. We'll get into that here in a moment. But it is going to be frustrating if we ask something that can't deliver to fill that longing heart. When we have the very one who does fill it in full measure, so full that it lasts for eternity, right there in God. And so hopefully as we move through those points, our hearts will be sort of fettered back to the God of all grace. We would see him above all else. And that the song that we just sang would be one that we would be eagerly hopeful to sing yet again. Let's consider that together. Our hearts will long. First of all, we find that in chapter 7, it's just a bunch of proverbs for a longing heart. Here in Ecclesiastes, we find proverbs for a longing heart. So connecting this sporadic list of proverbs that kind of hit all over the place is the reality that our hearts long for something. The heart is referenced in totality seven times in this chapter. It's the undercurrent issue to all the concerns brought to the forefront by the preacher. And he uses a better than and comparison statements to really drive it home, to really drive home even conventional wisdom, like challenging it, to make us think differently about something that we would otherwise maybe not think about, because he's exposing in us our longing hearts and the incompleteness of this world. For example, we start off with a banger. Death is better teacher than anything else that you'll experience in this life. Death is a better teacher. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, pause. You're like, okay, that makes sense. Having good character is better than having great things. If you want to just sort of reduce it down. You want to have the kind of character that is encouraging and good to those around you, glorifying to God. That's far better than accumulating stuff, even the best of stuff. But then what in the world is he, where, where is he going? And then the day of death, then the day of birth. You're just kind of not anticipating such a crazy turn. And he's lining those up. Just like a good character is better than stuff, death is better than birth. What's going on here? What's he doing? Well, think about the perspective from birth. It's that life is filled with endless possibilities and potential and hopes. And most of us are, have been alive long enough to know, well, that's hogwash, right? <laughs> Once you start experiencing life, like all of that starts to like creep in and the big dreams start to become little like aspirations because life can be hard and life can be challenging and life can not go the way that you think it goes. And, and who knows, all kinds of accidents happen and occur over the course of life. Yet death is inevitable, impending. It's an unstoppable reality. And it teaches us to 
sober our thoughts and to guard our hearts. Death is like reverse engineering. Now, I, I hesitate to say anything engineering related in this room. There are many of you who engineer things all day, every day, and I, I don't. But I will say looking at death is like reverse engineering into your life. It shapes the things that you value. You know that at some point, death comes. And that's a game changer, if you will. It changes the way that we sometimes look at life. Look what else that the preacher says in this sporadic list of Proverbs. In verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Again, another comparison. It's better to be at a funeral than at a party. Because a funeral teaches us more than a party does. It teaches us more about life and about people. About our own emotions, our own thoughts than a party does. And so we find that in this passage, the preacher is leveling out wisdom to guard our longing hearts. And we would guard our hearts from longing, overly longing for things that may disappoint, may be lost, may be inconsistent. We can go about longing for power and possessions and pleasures, which we've considered along the way in our Ecclesiastes series. We can long for those things in this life, but we'll run into all sorts of frustrations. If you haven't yet, you will. And so the preacher is wanting to impact some wisdom, guard that longing hearts of yours. Guard that longing heart of yours. Temper your expectations ever so slightly. Look at verse 12, what we read there toward the end. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Oftentimes, being a little bit more financial stable is helpful when you weather storms in life. You're able to handle those a little bit better. But if you're already on the edge of your finances and something sideways happens, then, then the anxieties and the frustrations, they all, they all like get exponentially harder. Having wisdom in this life that goes about guarding your heart from giving way to things so much so that you put all your chips on them, it, it, it's like increasing the levels of anxieties and insecurities and frustrations that we experience. So he says, be wise. And there's something true to this. Our hearts are, are, are longing because, because that's, that's what they were created to do. We were made for something bigger. And while the preacher goes, and, uh, goes to death as a major variable for his wisdom that he's given to everyone, he just doesn't go far enough. He, he needed to go beyond death, above death, to really drive home the needed wisdom for us. Because he's coming from an under-the-sun perspective, and we needed an above-the-sun perspective, helping us come to grips with meaning and value and purpose that transcend the reality of death, that go bigger and better than death. We needed something more than death to be that, that variable that causes us to take a sober look at life. We needed something above the sun. The longing we all feel whether it is something we have yet to acquire or something we 
once had reveals how the heart is hardwired. Our hearts are hardwired this way. This speaks to what is called Imago Dei. That is, we are created in the image of God. And as image bearers, we are wired for something big, something grand, something glorious. A purpose that surpasses the under the sun horizon. We are made for something that's even bigger and more powerful than death. And the hearts that we have long for that something. We can go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created in His own image, the image of God He created Him. Male and female, He created them. We are created distinctly different than the rest of creation. We are given this image-bearing privilege and responsibility in our lives. So our longing is going to be tied to how God has made us. And He's made us to bear His image. But we also know that something bad happened along the way. Sin marred this image, and it threw us off of living in light of that purpose. We now seek lesser things. We now want lesser things to fulfill us than what we see in the beginning of Genesis where Adam and Eve were fulfilled in their relationship with God. Look at the very end, uh, words will be on the screen of Chapter 7, verse 29. The preacher looks around in life. And he says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. They have sought out lesser things to fulfill their longing heart. God made them for a, an incredible purpose. Because of sin, they've tossed that purpose and have sought out lesser things. And yet God, in His grace and His mercy, in His infinite wisdom and kindness, purposed and promised a way back to that great and glorious purpose of our lives. And that is found in redemption. Redemption restores mankind, the people, the sinners, that imago Dei. It restores that above the sun purpose. And it brings satisfaction to the longing heart. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's an incredible chapter that is applying the gospel to the way that we look at life and live it out, how it changes the way that we see the things around us and live out those things. And in a run of incredible statements showing how the gospel changes us, he goes on to say that we are changed to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the longing heart is marred by sin, seeks out lesser things. But God in His grace and His mercy through the person and work of Jesus Christ and the powerful breaking into our lives and into that wandering heart by the power of the Spirit, He is restoring us through that redemption back to what He created us for. Created after his likeness, growing in righteousness and holiness. There we find the satisfaction for our longing hearts. It's important that we see that. It's important that we recognize that we have longing hearts. Not wrong that your heart 
longs for something, wired for it. Be careful that this, this chapter is helping us see that. From an under-the-sun under perspective, no less, be careful what you throw your longing heart into. Secondly, we find that the world just simply can't deliver. Can't deliver. There are plenty of good and great things that you have, will, experience in this life. They can't deliver what that longing in our hearts is really after. The world frustrates our pursuits. It frustrates our pursuits with those lesser schemes. Rather than finding our hope and our identity and who God is and what he has done, his grace and his mercy to us through Jesus, rather than finding our identity in the, the, the overwhelming every day the mercy is new and full that we wake up to, we chase after a lesser scheme. Let's consider the rest of our chapter just sort of walking us through the inconsistencies of what we'll experience in this life. Just as we're reading through this, it's going to be striking how something can be so positive and yet be so undercut by something so negative. And that's part of what we experience in this frustrating world and partly why it can't deliver what our hearts long for. Start with verse 14. Verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 7. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Enjoy the good days and temper your heart in the hard ones. Because there's just an aspect of this life that you just simply aren't going to be able to figure it out. You can't anticipate when it's going to be good days and when it's going to be hard days or when the good days are going to be gone because you can't figure God out. And because you can't figure God out, don't let your highs be too high. Enjoy the good things in your life. And don't let your lows get too low because you just simply don't know how it's all going to go. For Office fans, Andy's famous statement, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good days before you've actually left them. Maybe you've felt that. And that's essentially what verse 14 is saying. You don't know how this is all going to go. Enjoy those good days in the moment. And temper your heart in the heart. Now, that's good wisdom. I mean, we can certainly think through that and apply that to our lives. But there's an aspect there that's a, a stinging aspect that you're just simply not going to know. Now, look at verses 15 through 18. The world, the world doesn't play by the rules. Verses 15 through 18. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. That just countered what he just said a few verses earlier. So he's experiencing the inconsistencies in this life. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The world just doesn't play by the rules. Conventional wisdom would say that, and he said it a few verses earlier, righteous, wise will prolong their lives. But from the preacher's perspective, the opposite comes also. The wicked prolongs their lives through their wickedness. It can be maddening to see this at play in life. To see wicked people prosper. It shouldn't be so. It's not the way it's supposed to work. 
And that's an aspect of the frustrations in this world. So if we look to the world to fill the longing of our hearts, we're only going to be frustrated as we look around and we see things not go the way they should. Let's continue on and look at verses 19 through 24. Calls us, you know, play the game that is this world, but know that some things are just going to be beyond your control. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all things that people say, lest you hear your servants cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Ouch. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Again, do you feel this sort of tension, this pull, this back and forth of, of, yeah, that makes sense, and yeah, I guess I have experienced that. Positive statements about wisdom. And again, our preacher may have a secular view, but he's pointing out true things. And yet, that ultimate satisfaction will be elusive, far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it? There's still yet an incompleteness in our preacher. There's still yet an ache, a still yet a longing, a twinge in his heart. And then let's consider the last section there, which shows us abandoning God's design just is going to continue and prolong the longing throughout all of life. Verses 25 through 29. I tuned, turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many things. Again, abandoning God's design for the way that we are to live our lives is only going to prolong the the longing and, and, and impact us deeply with more frustration. The preacher wanted to figure out the scheme of things. He wanted to know and have and find what is ultimate, but to do so on his terms. On his terms, not God's. The one who actually has all things ultimate. He, he gives us a portrayal of someone living out a dysfunctional life. He found life and relationships and systems to be snares and traps, offering the world but only bringing frustration. And remember, we've said that the preacher here, doing the first-person discourse of Ecclesiastes, we believe that to be Solomon later in his life. And his heart was turned away from the Lord by all that which he brought in to his life. His heart was pulled away from God by the gods of all the wives he took on. So he just exacerbated the longing and frustration that he experienced in his life by bailing on God's design. Now, as we consider the, the way that the world can deliver, we can agree with the preacher to guard our hearts. We ought to be guarding our hearts. This is a very helpful chapter for us because it's honest 
about the things that we can experience in this life. And in so doing, it helps us guard our hearts because the heart informs the life. The heart informs the life. I love Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. Your heart will be pulled toward lesser things, lesser schemes, with self-centrist aims. You will seek to gratify what your heart longs for. And so, above all else, guard that heart, because life happens out of it. There was a classic work called Keeping the Heart, written by a man named John Flavel. And he gave six reasons why guarding your heart is so crucial. Six reasons why guarding your heart is so crucial. Reason number one is it concerns the glory of God. Guarding your heart concerns the glory of God because because your heart, if left to itself, will go to lesser things rather than to God who is worthy of all the glory, worthy of all affection, worthy of all of your worship, worthy of your heart. And so the one reason number one Why it's so crucial to guard our hearts is that it concerns the glory of God. Number two, it reveals the sincerity of our faith, the profession of our faith, that we are trusting in Christ, in His life, death, and resurrection, and we want to walk in newness of life, that the profession of our faith and trust in God is revealed in an extra measure, if you will. It's it's all the more evident as we are actively seeking to guard our hearts and say that God is above all else. Number three, in terms of why it's so crucial, is that the beauty of our lives that have been rescued and redeemed, restored by God, the beauty of our living arises from it. Guarding our hearts is crucial because it helps our hearts see that God is worth it, that God is our only hope, that God strengthens us, and that our lives, not perfect, maybe even flubbing along the way, but yet still trusting, still longing after God, it's actually beautiful. It reflects God's grace. Number four, and maybe some of us will resonate with this fourth point all the more. Another crucial reason why guarding our hearts is so um, necessary is that it's the comfort of our souls. The comfort of our souls depend upon it. The God that we know, the God that we know through Christ is the God of all comfort. And if We are chasing after lesser things. We're asking something that isn't all comfort to bring comfort. And so the comfort of our souls depend upon it. Number five, it fosters growth in grace. Peter says that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That our lives are to be growing in grace. And if we guard our hearts and say God is worth it and we trust Him through Christ and we're relying upon Him, then it fosters growth in grace in us. And then lastly, sixth, Flavel points out that our stability in the face of temptation depends upon it. Just as we are comforted in God, so we are strengthened in God to face the temptation of lesser things and lesser schemes that pull on our hearts. So it is crucial that we join the preacher's list of warnings and, and proverb-like statements in chapter 7 that, that are helping us see that we need to guard our hearts in this frustrating world. Yes, 
Yes, we do. But we need to guard our hearts with the things that are above the sun, not just wisdom that is true under the sun. And as we do that, we find that ultimately that leads us to see the third point of our morning, and that is only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. That the longing heart finds rest in God and God alone. Consider the grace and mercy of God for wandering hearts like ours. I love Psalm 107. It's an incredible psalm to to look at. It's looking at different kinds of struggles and situations in life and shows how God intervenes in those moments, in those gracious moments, those moments with his grace. In verses 4 through 9, we have an incredible picture that relates well. Psalm 107 Verses 4 and 5 show that we can sometimes wander in desert wastelands in this world. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. That longing heart asking the world to satisfy, only to be left hungry and thirsty. Some of us may be in that now. You might be feeling that now. And it is a a grace of God that that is being exposed to your heart so that you can move into those next verses where we realize that that we are asking something in this world to satisfy our longing hearts and that really the only response is to turn to God even now. In verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 107, it says, Then they cried to the Lord. They're in the desert waste. They're hungry and thirsty. Their soul is fainted within them. They're longing and they're not being satisfied. And is it too late? No, it's not too late with the God of all grace and mercy. It's not too late for you if you're in a desert wasteland asking it to give you water. It's not too late for you because even then you can cry to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Nature and scope of God's grace doesn't run dry as we wander further into the the Sahara of our longing hearts. God has yet more grace for us. God is kind and gracious, and you know what he does? He welcomes us in, and he satisfies us with himself. And and get this, because it's going to go counterintuitive to your heart. You're going to believe something wrongly about God. You're going to believe that God is miserly with his grace. That he gives just enough and that's at bare minimum. That's what your your initial sort of reaction will be. Is that God God's kind of miserly. He'll, he'll, he'll just hit the bar and that's it. No, God isn't miserly with his riches. Psalm 107 verses 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Why? For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The hearts will long. The world can't give what you're longing for. Only God can give it and he gives it in full. Take a moment and search your heart. Are you longing 
for what you once had? Are you longing for something you wish you will have? Has that longing supplanted the ultimacy of God in your heart? I ask you take this seriously. Do you know the depth of God's grace? That you may be living as if there is something better than God. But if you turn back to him, you know that God won't ghost you. He will lavish you with his grace. And he will satisfy your longing soul. A longing heart is delicate but potent. It aches as one with deep wounds, wanting fulfillment and relief. The twinge in our longing hearts will always persist until we come to find that only God satisfies. May we take that in, rest and rejoice in that wonderful truth and grace. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that. You would do that good work in us. We certainly have hearts. We know the longing hearts that we have. We know that we have indeed wandered. And we ask that you would bind our wandering hearts by your grace, to your goodness, to your glory, that we would trust you and find in you the one who satisfies our souls. And for any in here that are in a desert wasteland right now, God, I would pray that you would prompt their hearts to turn to you and to find in you one who has steadfast love and grace and mercy and who satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry for the full. God, may you do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.